This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Finding Peace. In the first half, Jeffrey F. Ringer shares his address, Finding Sanctuary. Then in the second half, Leslie Thorne Murphy speaks on Peace I Leave With You. Like many other parents, we spent a good deal of time watching videos with our kids when they were young. Often those videos contain surprising lessons. For example, in the Disney animated film of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, there's a climactic moment when Quasimodo rescues Esmeralda from the flames and rushes into the Cathedral of Notre Dame shouting for sanctuary. Whatever liberties the executives at Disney may have taken with Victor Hugo's novel, they are at least strong on an actual medieval practice that considered the church a place of refuge. During the conflicts between church and state in Europe during the Middle Ages, church land was considered to be beyond the reach of the law and thus a sanctuary or place of refuge for those wrongly or in some cases rightly accused of crimes. Although the practice of sanctuary was discontinued centuries ago, you can still find sanctuary stones dotting the English countryside marking the ancient boundaries of refuge for sanctuary seekers. In a time when we are swept up in a tidal wave of bad news, when the gloomy march of economic misery seems to engulf us all, when natural and man-made disasters occur almost daily, when today's students are told that they are entering a bleak job market and an uncertain economic future, and the screaming heads of an increasingly politicized 24-hour news cycle convince us that things have never been worse, and each of us quietly or not so quietly muddles through a multitude of personal trials, let me suggest that we counter that tie by working to find our own personal sanctuaries in our faith, at our church meetings, and in our relationships with family, friends, and the Lord. Finding sanctuary begins with understanding who we are and what we believe. Soon after we were married, Amy and I moved to Boulder, where I began a Ph.D. program in political science at the University of Colorado. There were about a dozen of us who entered the program that year, and one of them was a woman named Sandy Samuels. Sandy was a chain-smoking, self-described, non-practicing Jew, and she and I became good friends. One day when I was studying in the group office that Ph.D. students shared in the basement of the building, Sandy walked in, sat on the corner of the desk, lit a cigarette, asking if I minded and not waiting long enough for my response, took a long theatrical drag and asked, You're a Mormon, right? You might have thought that a reasonably well-educated returned missionary would rise to the occasion, prepared to deliver a stirring recitation of our beliefs. But instead, I confess, I heard alarm bells in my head. Having been in this situation many times growing up, I knew that inevitably this question was followed by an examination based on some misunderstanding of our beliefs. So I was caught off guard when Sandy simply asked, What is a Mormon? I remember stumbling through some inadequate description of our beliefs that must have satisfied her because the conversation turned to another subject. That little exchange has bothered me over the years, and I've rehearsed a thousand better answers to her question than what I gave her. It's my practice to begin each day by reading the New York Times. It's a habit I picked up in graduate school and have continued since then. I'm a great advocate of reading quality newspapers, and it's one of the reasons that the Kennedy Center distributes free copies of the Times. In the build-up to the 2002 Olympic Games in Salt Lake City, I was interested to read the media coverage of Utah, particularly how the culture and dominant religion were portrayed. As each article came out, I eagerly read through to see how we were described. With increasing frustration, I kept trying to find myself in those articles. I barely recognized the culture and religious beliefs they were describing. The facts were in order, but the meaning was missing. Frustrated, I composed a hundred letters to the editor in my head, explaining who we really were, what we believe, and how we live. In the end, I resigned myself to something that scholars have long known. Understanding a culture from the outside is an extraordinarily difficult thing. However frustrating outside critiques may be, the bigger obstacle to finding sanctuary is when we begin to misunderstand our own beliefs when we allow our faith to be diminished and trivialized. That often occurs as we begin to rewrite our own history, concluding, for example, that my mission wasn't that meaningful or I didn't really have that experience. In so doing, we fall prey to the situation described by George Orwell in his novel 1984 when he wrote, Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. At our worst, we caricature our own beliefs making them seem small, insignificant, and even slightly embarrassing. In the end, we come to believe that our religion is no more than a series of interesting social customs and that our faith is as easily discarded as an unwanted gym membership. 
I suppose that we are known for many things, including some valuable social behaviors, but let us be clear about our faith. As inspired as those teachings are, we are not the church of the people who don't date until they're 16 or the church of the people who don't drink coffee. Others may want to circumscribe our religion to make it small and tidy, but we must not let ourselves shrink our religion or let our own thinking be made small. We are the Church of Jesus Christ, and we seek to follow Him and put His teachings into practice in our own lives. In so doing, we find sanctuary in our faith. But what about those times when our faith is weak or it wavers? Then we must act as if. In the words of William Sloan Coffin, the longtime chaplain of Yale University, it is terribly important to realize that the leap of faith is not so much a leap of thought as of action. While in many matters it is first we must see, then we will act. In matters of faith, it is first we must do, then we will know. First we will be, and then we will see. One must, in short, dare to act wholeheartedly without absolute certainty. Or, as he said more succinctly, I love the recklessness of faith. First you leap, and then you grow wings. Remember also the lesson recorded in Joshua chapter 3. The waters of the Jordan were not stopped until the priests stepped into the river. Faith compels action, and we nourish that faith by communicating with the Lord. My assignment at the university requires me to have some infrequent contact with church headquarters, especially as it relates to hosting or a program I direct in China. A couple of years ago, Amy and I were making our annual pilgrimage to Disneyland with the kids when my cell phone rang. We were driving south on I-15 at the time, just passing through Las Vegas. I looked at the caller ID, knowing that I had asked my secretary only to forward emergency calls, and I saw that it was coming from a 240 prefix, the prefix of the church office building. Knowing I had to answer this call, I asked the kids to be quiet and said hello. A formal female voice replied, saying, Please hold for Elder Oaks. Immediately, I was nervous. For him to be tracking me down on my cell phone suggested that there was a problem. For some reason, I felt guilty even taking the call while I was driving through Vegas on my way to Disneyland. (laughs) So I told the kids to be quiet with a little more urgency and waited for Elder Oaks to come on the line. Fortunately, I had already answered to his question. The call ended mercifully quickly. I've been thinking about that call and the other calls I've had over the years in connection with prayer. If I respond so seriously to conversations with general authorities and church officers, why am I inclined to occasionally treat communication with my Father in Heaven so casually? We are instructed to counsel with the Lord in all thy doings. I suspect that none of us are in the position where we can spend all day on our knees counseling with the Lord. There are classes to attend, work to do, meals to cook, and a thousand other things each of us needs to do every day. What then might it mean to counsel in all thy doings? Clearly, part of it involves regular, formal prayers, but to me it also suggests an attitude of living, the recognition of our dependence on our Heavenly Father, and a commitment to seek and know His will. Several years ago, the What Would Jesus Do movement became very popular. It was inspired originally, I believe, by our friends in the evangelical community. And before it became a marketing tool used to sell merchandise, it contained a helpful reminder to keep our relationship with the Lord in our minds as we make decisions throughout the day. Early in our marriage, Amy had a friend who took this teaching quite seriously. She counseled with the Lord in all aspects of her life, including seemingly trivial matters like what to cook for dinner or how to decorate her apartment. Amy and I used to laugh at this, confident that the Lord didn't need to be troubled with such minutia of daily life and thinking that such prayers suggested a kind of unhealthy spiritual dependency. Now, with a little more life experience, I'm less quick to dismiss these kinds of prayers. I still don't find myself asking about paint colors for the walls, but I'm more inclined to believe that constant communication forms part of the fabric of a necessary relationship with the Lord. For me, it makes some sense to relate it to parenthood. Each of our children has different ways of communicating with Amy and me. We've tried to raise them to be independent, capable adults, something I hope they're on their way to becoming. But on the way, I've noticed some interesting things. Our oldest daughter, Kelsey, just finished her junior year at BYU. She lives in an apartment with friends and manages her life about as well as any 20-year-old could be expected to do. She also calls us just about every day, often with what seem to be non-questions. Amy and I used to laugh about it, but it has gradually dawned on me that there may be a purpose in those calls. She doesn't really need us to answer the questions she's asking. She needs us to know what she's doing and that she's thinking about us and values our opinions. Our other children have their own ways of communicating. Some of them want to tell us lots of details and practically demand our attention, while others are happy to simply know we're there. I suspect the same holds true for each of our relationships with the Lord. 
that are colored by our own personalities and needs and will each march to their own individual rhythms. But what remains true for all of us is the need to counsel with the Lord. The key, I think, lies in the word counsel. It suggests a very different kind of prayer than sometimes we fall into the trap of reciting. We've been pretty good throughout our married life of making sure that each day ends with our family on our knees praying together. Unfortunately, not all of those prayers rise to the level of counseling with the Lord. There is the inevitable giggling or recitation of rote lines. Years ago, our younger son began using the word kaponus in his prayers. At first, I was a little baffled, thinking it sounded vaguely Latin. What it turned out to be was his young mind trying to make sense of the phrase, come upon us, which apparently we all used routinely in our evening prayers. It meant nothing to him but a collection of sounds that he figured had to fit into a prayer at some point. Perhaps many of us fall into the trap of routinized prayers at times that fall far short of the goal of counseling with the Lord. In so doing, we starve our faith and delay finding sanctuary. Entering the great cathedrals of Europe evokes an immediate sense of awe at the majesty of the architecture and at the dedication it took to build these great monuments. Walking into a modern LDS building may not have the same effect on us. The architecture is much less grand and the interior is much more practical. Nevertheless, they should and ought to be weekly places of sanctuary for each of us. In the Doctrine and Covenants, section 115, verse 6, the Lord says, The gathering together upon the land of Zion and upon her stakes may be for our defense and for a refuge from the storm. To the outsider, the three-hour meeting time on Sunday, depending on the ward, must seem to have elements of a worship service, a neighborhood gathering, a single social event, daycare, and a K-12 through school with some adult education thrown in. Too often, even to those of us in the Church, it can feel more like work than worship. But at the heart of those three hours is the ordinance of the sacrament and the opportunity to renew our baptismal covenants, the opportunity to witness again to the Lord that we not only believe, but that we will do. To find sanctuary at our Church meetings, our responsibility is twofold, to ourselves and to others. To ourselves, we have the responsibility to rethink, if necessary, our approach to our weekly meetings, to treat them less like an assignment and more like worship. I'm well aware of the challenges of getting kids out of bed and ready while worrying about the primary, Sunday school, Relief Society, or priesthood lesson we need to teach, and the difficulty of feeling reverential when our young kids throw their Cheerios and our teenagers sleep open-mouthed through the services. But somehow we must find that reverence. We can all take practical steps to make sure that we are more prepared for Sabbath services but we can also make an inner commitment to refocus and recommit to the core purpose of worship. To others in the congregation, we have the responsibility to enrich their experience as well. On several occasions, Amy and I have lived with the kids in London and attended a local branch or ward. These few scattered branches and wards in a city of 12 million people are vital sanctuaries for the members, places where they can meet with fellow saints and rejoice in their company. Obviously, our situation is different here, but we could learn something from these British saints, many of whom are both recent immigrants to the UK and recent converts to the Church. They look forward to each Sunday, often traveling long distances and greet each other like family members. The meetings may not always run with the precision of a Wasatch Front ward and may not always adhere to standard operating procedures, but there is a palpable joy in being together in a community of saints. Let us work to bring that same sense of community to our services, the same inclusiveness, the same fellowship, and we may begin to feel the sanctuary of our weekly services. A few years ago, Amy and I were in Hong Kong on assignment from the university and attended a session at the Hong Kong Temple. After the session, we received a briefing from the Asia Area Presidency on the state of the Church in Asia. In the course of the briefing, Elder Watson showed a picture of an elderly Mongolian woman standing in front of her yurt, the traditional Mongolian tent. He went on to explain that this sister, a recent convert to the Church, had, over the course of many months, saved her money so that she could pay for the four-day train ride from Mongolia to Hong Kong to attend the temple for the first time. She did all this at her own expense without any monetary support from the Church. As I looked at the picture of this dedicated sister and thought of her four-day train ride, my own commitment to the temple seemed rather pale in comparison. Amy and I live near Kiwanis Park on the east side of campus. So rather than a four-day train ride on hard seats, we have about a four-minute car drive on comfortable chairs. Yet it may as well be a four-day train ride sometimes. I can easily find two hours to watch my friend coach a basketball game in the Marriott Center, but finding the same amount of time to be in the temple feels somehow more difficult. I fear that for some of us, the convenience of a temple may have led to a casualness about the temple. 
And yet it is there that we can find, as Isaiah said, a place of refuge and a cover from storm and from rain. Let us all recommit to finding sanctuary in the temple, to treat it as a refuge from the daily grind. In the temple we find peace, we find truth, we find God. I've reached the stage of my life commonly known as middle age, and I expect it's a consequence of that stage to become a bit more reflective. So permit me a few words about families. I recognize that in the audience are people at all stages of family life. Some are still firmly embedded in their parents' families, others are just starting their own, while others are further down the path. Amy and I are now sending children out of the house rather than welcoming them in. I suppose we all have moments of clarity that strike each of us in different ways. On a walk, listening to music, reading the scriptures. Mine typically come at 34,000 feet over the Pacific Ocean, stuck in seat 44C in economy class. I had one of those moments a couple of summers ago flying back from Shanghai, trying unsuccessfully to get comfortable while Amy snoozed contentedly beside me. I started thinking of the kids. At that time, Taylor was almost back from his mission. Kelsey had just finished her freshman year at BYU, and Eliza was about to join Hanson at Provo High. And it reminded me that when I took a job at BYU, Kelsey was a newborn, and Hanson and Eliza weren't born yet. We were that young couple with the little kids on the word picture board. Despite how I may still feel about myself, I recognize that we aren't that family anymore. What surprises me is how quickly it's gone, and as we sit around and reminisce, what it is the kids remember. Some of it certainly is the big events and the accomplishments, but more of it is the minutia, the day-to-day stuff of life, the made-up stories when we're desperately trying to get the kids in bed, the attempts at family prayer and scripture study that may not have turned out perfectly, or the trips to 7-Eleven for a Slurpee. As every parent knows, the lessons we think we're teaching our kids aren't always the lessons that they're learning. Back in 2000, we were living in London directing the study abroad program. It was our kids' first time in the city, so we spent a couple of days walking around the neighborhood and helping them get settled. On one of these walks down a busy street, Amy noticed a bus number that she'd been wondering about. And since it was one of the old Routemaster buses with the driver up front and a conductor in the back, she hopped on the back platform to ask the conductor about its route and cost. Satisfied, she hopped back off and the bus started to drive away. What we hadn't noticed was that Hanson had followed her onto the bus. And as it drove away, we had a perfect view of his eight-year-old face looking quizzically at us from the back platform. (laughs) A million things go through a parent's mind at a time like this, including how in the world is he ever going to find his way back when he doesn't have any money, doesn't know the city, and has no idea where we live. Panicking that she would never be able to find him again, Amy started yelling, Jump! In a panic of what would happen if he jumped off a speeding bus onto a busy street, I started yelling, don't jump. (laughs) Hanson, caught in that awkward moment of conflicting parental demands, froze uncertain what to do. Luckily, an observant businessman grabbed him and stopped him from jumping and notified the driver to pull over. In the aftermath of our little scare, we went to a great deal of effort to establish a family safety travel plan. If any of the kids ever got separated from the family, they would get off at the next bus or tube stop and wait for the family to catch up. On a subsequent trip, sure enough, we had occasion to put the plan into practice. We had ridden the light rail to Greenwich and were returning to London. The kids had run ahead, pushed the open door button on the train, and gotten on. We followed them and pushed the button for the door to open. It didn't work on the first push or on any of the increasingly vigorous pushes that followed. Instead, the train began to pull away, and we watched as our kids waved goodbye with their faces pressed against the window. Again, we were saved by the kindness of other passengers who notified the conductor, and the train was stopped and the doors manually opened. In our debriefing afterwards, we asked the kids what they would have done if the train hadn't stopped. Fully expecting that they would tell us that they would have followed the family plan, our youngest Eliza instead said, that she would have ridden the train into the city and switched it to the tube at the bank station, ridden it to Queensway, walked down Bayswater Road, turned right on Palace Court, and gone to our home at number 27. (laughs) I was stuck wondering how in the world she had learned to navigate the transportation system of one of the largest cities in the world and how in the world she had gotten our family travel plans so wrong. (laughs) Of all the lessons we try to teach our kids, there is one that we must get right. It is the lesson that they are loved. Perhaps the greatest gift my parents ever gave me was the gift of never wondering if I was loved, never wondering if they were proud of me, never wondering where I fit in their hierarchy of priorities. That's the gift I hope I've given to my children. For each of us, 
home ought to be our daily sanctuary. I've on occasion heard people speak about their marriages and say things like, I've never spoken a word I regretted or we've never gone to bed angry with each other. It's not that I don't admire the sentiment or these people. I just don't know who they are and how they do it. (laughs) Amy and I are certainly not perfect, and I may have spoken a few words I regretted and made her angry at me more than once, but I have never doubted that she is the one I hope to spend eternity with. It is a love so deep and so fundamental to who we are that it trumps any of the problems that life brings. There is enough of criticism at school and work for a child or spouse to face it at home, too. Outside the home, there is always someone smarter, prettier, more athletic, or better educated. In the home, we should all feel loved, respected, and accepted, knowing that among these people and in this place, we have our sanctuary. Finding sanctuary in our faith, at our church, in the temple, and in our relationships may not help us pass the test we haven't prepared for, find the perfect job, or save a wayward child or roommate. But it does promise the peace that comes when each of us finds the ultimate sanctuary in a personal relationship with our Lord and Savior. That peace and assurance can sometimes take time to find. Discipleship is not earned in a day, a week, or a year. It is earned through the sustained exercise of faith and commitment through the variety of challenges each of us will face in our lives. The challenges may appear unequal from person to person, but they give each of us the opportunity to learn, to grow, and to become. Discipleship requires patience with ourselves and with our situations. One of the enduring questions in theology is often phrased as follows. If God loves us so much, why is life so hard? Why do some endure miserable living conditions, broken home lives, and unbearable pain, while others seem to coast through life with a silver spoon in their mouth? I don't know that I have a fully satisfactory answer to that question, but I do know that the differing situations we face in life do not correspond to how much our Father loves each of us. I trust that one aspect of divine love is the desire for the one you love to fulfill their full potential. The parent who understands this asks more of their children. The teacher who understands this demands more of their students. And a God who authored this allows each of us to be tested so that we can progress along the path to the divine. No stranger to suffering himself, Elder Neil A. Maxwell wrote, The justice of God permits no special deal for disciples. We must subdue our selfishness. We must endure the pain of prioritizing. We must cope with the variables of the second estate. There can be no later outcry by the non-believers that they were ultimately deprived of an equal chance to believe and to follow. For disciples, there is no spiritual equivalent to the prime rate or the most favored nation clause. Brothers and sisters, there is no cramming for discipleship, no cliff notes, no accelerated courses. It is an education that proceeds according to the rhythm of our lives as we meet the challenges presented to us. The blessings of discipleship unfold slowly as we act on Christ's teachings and bear with patience and humility the lessons we are taught. And the blessings of discipleship take the form of the most important victories in our lives. No fanfare, no public notice, no awards or trophies— just the personal and infinitely more meaningful victory of the soul that allows each of us to come to know Christ and to understand the purpose of mortality. In the meantime, we must, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, plow in hope. The patience of a disciple can sometimes extend to the next generation. Finding patient sanctuary in his old age, Thomas Jefferson wrote, Too old to plant trees for my own gratification, I shall do it for my posterity. I apologize to those of you who have heard me tell this story before, but as some of you know, I was raised in what we refer to in the church as a part-member home. My mom was an Idaho farm girl who had moved to the big city, Idaho Falls, (laughs) to be a telephone operator. My dad was the son of a Pennsylvania coal miner who joined the Navy at 17 and was, several years later, sent to Idaho to train at the nuclear reactor facility for his assignment on the first nuclear submarine, the Nautilus. There they met, fell in love, and eloped to the romantic getaway of Elko, Nevada. (laughs) During those years, my dad was a wonderful father and a devoted husband, but he was not interested in my mother's faith. My mom found herself with four young children living on a submarine base in New London, Connecticut, with a husband who was out to sea for months at a time. I wonder how easy it would have been for her to slip away from the church, to take a week off, to make the understandable excuse of how hard it was to get the kids to church by herself, But she never did. She cured our bouts of Sunday sickness, served faithfully in her callings, and never took the easy way out. As an adult, 
I realize that everything in my faith I owe to my mother. I don't want to romanticize growing up without a father in the church. There were difficult moments for my mom that I was oblivious to and things that I missed out on as a child. But it did free me of one all-too-common misperception in the church. Growing up the way I did, I was never burdened with the false belief that women are in any way less capable or less fundamental to the gospel plan than men. For those of you who know Amy, you won't be surprised to hear that I've relearned that lesson every day for the last 25 years. (laughs) There is too often a mismatch between our professions regarding the sanctity of womanhood and motherhood and our behavior that demeans and diminishes. We do no damage to God's eternal plan in behaving this way, but we certainly endanger our role in that plan. Many of us find ourselves in situations where we fight against hopelessness, wondering why things haven't gone the way we had them planned out when we were young. Sometimes we recognize the consequences of our own choices. Other times we suffer with the consequences of others. But there is always hope. For 51 years, my mother went to church without a husband as they moved from submarine bases on the East Coast to shore duty in Missouri to a post-Navy life in Colorado and then retirement in Utah to be near their kids. A few days before my father's 75th birthday, he was baptized. At 76, we were sealed in the temple as a family. Now at 79, he and my mother served together in a small branch, ministering to those in a care facility in Orem, my dad in the branch presidency, and my mom in the Relief Society presidency. These last four years didn't make the previous half century easier. It just made them worth it. It's the same for all of us. It may not be tomorrow or next month or next year, but it will be worth it. Paul described Abraham as one who, against hope, believed in hope. There may be times that that is all we have to cling to, but the ultimate reward of that hope is the sanctuary of a personal relationship with the Lord. That is the good news. As recorded in 2 Samuel, The God of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my Savior. Or as written in Deuteronomy, The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. We can find sanctuary in good times and bad in the open, loving arms of a Father in heaven and a Savior who love us both for who we are and who we may become. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Finding Peace. We've just heard from Jeffrey F. Ringer, After the break, we'll return with Leslie Thorne Murphy for Peace I Leave With You. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Finding Peace. Next is Leslie Thorne Murphy, BYU Associate in the English Department at the time of this address, titled, Peace I Leave With You. It doesn't seem that long ago when I was a student here at BYU attending devotionals and forums. I'm glad to be part of this tradition as a speaker now. This campus community is a precious one, especially as we have opportunities to come together and discuss matters of the gospel. I'd like to tell you about an experience I had as a student. I was learning French and realized that in order to progress in my studies, I needed to immerse myself in the language. So I applied for an internship and went to work as a nanny for a wonderful French-speaking family in Belgium. For the first several weeks, I traveled with the family in France. As I had hoped, my language skills were improving daily. Being corrected by a two-year-old was highly motivating. Eventually, when we arrived back at the family's home near Brussels, I had Sundays free so I could attend church. My hosts were kind enough to help me determine which trains and trams I would take to get to the nearest chapel, and the next Sunday I ventured into Brussels on my own. After taking the train into the heart of the city and making various connections, I began walking through the busy city streets. Brussels is a beautiful and a vibrant city. I came to love it. On this first trip through the city, however, I began to feel overwhelmed, a bit lost, and very much alone. In fact, the stresses of the last several weeks started to weigh heavy. 
the difficulties of constantly communicating in another language, of fitting into another family's routines, of adjusting to a new employer's expectations. Lost, alone, overwhelmed, I said a silent prayer and walked on. Finally, I turned a corner and caught sight of a bright white row building with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in French posted on the front. It's hard to describe exactly what happened at that moment, but what I can say is that the sight of that sign brought peace to my soul. Yes, I was relieved to have found the church building, but it was something more than that. The oppressive weight I had been feeling was lifted. I felt like I could go on. I smiled the biggest smile I'd had on my face for quite some time and marched right into that building to enjoy one of the most powerful testimony meetings I have ever experienced. When I think back on this time, I'm reminded of what has become my favorite scripture. In John chapter 14, verse 27, we read, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Christ spoke these words to his apostles as he was preparing them for his death. He had taught them that a comforter would come in his place so that they could continue to receive direction and solace. He had taught them about the resurrection, about carrying on his work, about how they could be unified with him and the Father. Yet, apparently, he knew that in spite of all that they had learned and all that they had experienced with him, the next segment of their lives was going to tax their faith and patience and confidence. He knew that one would betray him, that another would deny him, that many would feel shame, that all of them would suffer and worry and not fully comprehend the monumental events that were occurring. In the midst of what he knew would seem to be a world in turmoil, he offered them peace. His type of peace would not mean the absence of military action or civil unrest. Instead, Christ's peace resides in one's heart. It is a spiritual peace that quells fear and anxiety. In the midst of the adversity that he knew his apostles would face, he wanted to bless them with consolation confidence, and a conviction that all would be right in the end. I imagine there is not one soul on this earth who has not experienced adversity, who has not felt alone and troubled and afraid. Christ's gift to his apostles is certainly as available to us as it was to them. I know that his peace descended upon my heart in the middle of the busy streets of Brussels. My peace I give unto you, he says to each of us. So, how do we find this peace in the midst of our busy lives while studying for midterms, writing research papers, and negotiating social relationships? Especially, how do we find it during the times when life is at its hardest, when the fear and anxiety and anguish of human existence feels like it may well overcome us? Christ teaches that understanding his role in this world is key to feeling his peace. Be of good cheer, he says. I have overcome the world. One image that comes to mind when I think of understanding the Lord's role comes from Isaiah chapter 64. But now, O Lord, thou art our father, we are the clay, and thou our potter, and we all are the work of thy hand. Like a potter shaping clay into a beautiful vase, the Lord created us in the beginning, and he will continue to shape us now. Indeed, a great deal of peace comes with understanding this. He knows, for example, how to help us deal with consequences of sin in order to make us whole and perfect. He knows how to aid us in responding to such things as catastrophic illness, nonsensical violence, or perceived failure. That said, we have a role to play in this process, too. We are the living dust into which he breathed the breath of life, and he expects us to take part in our own shaping. To do this, we cultivate a sensitivity to the Lord's promptings. As the psalmist wrote, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
We need our hearts and our spirits to be in line with the Lord's will in order to truly feel His peace. I wish this were an easy process. I wish it were simple to feel secure, confident, and calm when encountering the bumps in life that can throw us off track. At times, I think I've managed to tap into Christ's peace and assurance at these points. At other times, I think I haven't done so well. Perhaps you've experienced this, too. I do find that watching how others deal with these situations teaches me a lot, whether those examples are in the lives of those around me, in the scriptures, or in the other books I read. In my work as an English professor, I have the pleasure of reading a lot of really good books. Many times my reading of these books goes beyond aesthetic appreciation or professional interest, and I find insights that truly enrich my understanding of life. Reading literary fiction can be a profoundly ethical exercise in learning to see the world from another's point of view. I had this experience several years ago when I first encountered the work of a Victorian author named Charlotte Young. Charlotte Mary Young was born in 1823 in a village in the south of England. She was part of an upper-middle-class family, the eldest of two children. Young's work was very popular during her day. Indeed, in Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, when Jo hides in her attic space to read, she is devouring Young's first bestseller titled The Heir of Redcliffe. Young lived out her life in the same village where she was born, teaching in the local Sunday school, nursing both her parents to their deaths, and honing her skills as an author. It's interesting to note that while Young was living a seemingly staid life in a secure and well-established community, the early Latter-day Saints were bringing forth the Restoration as they moved from Ohio to Missouri to Illinois and eventually to Utah. Charlotte Young, however, was a figure in a religious revolution of a different sort. She and her family were part of a reform effort within the Anglican Church called the Oxford Movement. Young saw her published work as part of this movement. She considered herself a sort of instrument for popularizing Church views, as she put it. Young thought deeply and seriously about religious matters. Though she rarely allowed overt questions of doctrine to intrude on her fiction, her novels engage with Christian principles in original and compelling ways. One of Young's favorite techniques was to write what she termed family chronicles, long novels about very large families. In her work, families are where Christian principles are learned and tested. When speaking of her novel, C.S. Lewis commented, Young makes it abundantly clear that domesticity is no passport to heaven on earth, but an arduous vocation, a sea full of hidden rocks and perilous ice shores, only to be navigated by one who uses a celestial chart. Lewis was right. Family life in Young's novels is an arduous vocation that allows her characters to grow, stumble, move on, and then begin the process again. One of her novels that best illustrates this process is titled The Pillars of the House. It narrates the adventures of a family with 13 children. Their father is a poor clergyman working as a curate to help oversee a parish in the Anglican Church. They are a complex and lively family whose members have their share of joy, laughter, and comfort in one another, as well as their share of the conflicts, petty betrayals, and estrangement that any group of humans encounters when they interact on a daily basis. In other words, this family behaves as a typical family does. That is, until their father contracts tuberculosis from a poor man he helped to nurse, suffers for years, and dies the day that his wife delivers her last two children, twins. Their mother passes away three years later, having never recovered from complications due to falling down the stairs while she was pregnant. The thirteen children are left to fend for themselves, and this is where the real plot of the novel begins. Young's novel narrates the children's predicament and the means they take to survive. Underlying this narrative is a prolonged contemplation on what it means to live a peaceful life in the midst of nearly unimaginable adversity. One of the characters in the book whose life demonstrates the struggle most clearly is the eldest child of the family, a young man who takes it upon himself to oversee and support his siblings when he is only 16 years old. His name is Felix. 
Felix is not living the life his parents had envisioned for him. Both his father and mother began life in relative ease. His father attended university and was groomed to take a position as clergyman on the family estate. He married and had his first few children during this period. Soon enough, however, a legal complication meant that he lost any prospect of working on or inheriting the estate and had to take a low-paying job in a parish far away. The ramifications of this scenario for Felix are great. He was to be the eldest son of a substantial clergyman, sure to have the chance for advanced education and a prosperous career. Instead, Felix chooses to leave his local school before he even has a chance to compete for a scholarship to university. He takes a job at the local newspaper office and stationery store and curtails his hopes of anything else, focusing on what he can do for his family. One can easily imagine Felix becoming overwhelmed with his responsibilities, fearful about what the future might hold, and embittered about his position in life. Indeed, he struggles with all of these reactions, and he is not the only one. Upon learning about Felix's decision to leave school, his brother Edgar, a young teenager with great talent as an artist, grabs a half-burnt stick and takes out his indignation on the whitewashed wall of his bedroom by covering it with a charcoal sketch of the Greek hero Achilles as he shouted down the Trojan army. In this battle, Achilles' comrade, Patroclus, had just been killed, and Achilles was furious. As Young described the scene in a storybook she wrote for children, The Trojans came thicker and more furiously on them and were almost bursting in when Achilles, hearing the noise, came out and standing on the rampart just as he was, all unarmed, gave a terrible, thundering shout at which the Trojans were filled with dismay and fled back in confusion. Edgar explains to his sister, If I were but older, I know I could. I'd save Felix from this horrible thing. I do feel I want to roar just like Achilles. Edgar's impassioned and heartfelt despair and frustration at his own powerlessness is certainly understandable. Have you ever felt like Edgar? Have you ever wanted to simply shout down the trials in your life, put them to rest through your sheer might? I certainly have. Confronting our troubles is a good strategy, though trying to overcome them through our own might is bound to end in more frustration. Sure enough, anxiety and fear, the opposites of Christ's peace, master Edgar time and again in the novel. Felix himself, though, chooses a different way of confronting his situation. Felix often makes difficult choices that align his will with what he understands of the Lord's will for him. He certainly experiences as much emotional turmoil as Edgar, but he also manages to find some peace in the midst of adversity. Take, for example, one of the few recreations Felix allows himself after he assumes responsibility for providing for his family. He continues to sing in the church choir. The choir is an integral part of nearly every Anglican observance, so this is a drain on Felix's very limited time. In spite of this, he never seems to consider letting this commitment go. Even after sorting through a particularly difficult domestic conflict during the Christmas holidays, Felix hurries to be on time to the holiday service. That night, Young explains, Felix found himself singing as he had never sung before, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. What Felix seems to find in religious observance, particularly in musical observance, is a sense of reverence, a sense of a presence larger than himself that can put his own troubles into perspective. This is a conviction that Edgar lacks. Paul Woodruff, a professor of humanities at the University of Texas in Austin, expresses the importance of reverence. Reverence begins in a deep understanding of human limitations. From this grows the capacity to be in awe of whatever we believe lies outside our control—God, truth, justice, nature, even death. The capacity for awe as it grows brings with it the capacity for respecting fellow human beings, flaws and all. Likewise, Felix's ability to feel awe 
anchors him. It allows him to accept his own and others' human limitations, the limitations that Edgar so resents. It allows him to reconcile himself to the idea of a maker who continues to shape and direct events and to trust that maker after he has done all he can. Reverence brings Felix peace. Reverence also gives Felix humility to persevere in the efforts that he knows are essential for the well-being of his family, and Felix is given some profound lessons in humility. A few of these lessons come from his brother, Fulbert, who is by turns rowdy and sullen. Fulbert is young, just ten when his father dies, and young deftly portrays the way that Fulbert translates his grief into marked resentment of his elder brother's newfound authority. Fulbert knows exactly how to provoke Felix. It's as though all Felix's patience and long-suffering evaporate when Fulbert spitefully wastes the precious food prepared for dinner, wreaks havoc in the town streets, or gambles. What is Felix to do when his best efforts fail? Felix humbles himself. He restrains his anger, attempts to see the situation from Fulbert's point of view, and does what he can to lead without imposing authority. In essence, he follows Christ's admonition in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. He does his best to make peace with Fulbert. In doing so, he implements the counsel on leadership that the Lord would give Joseph Smith— to lead by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned. Eventually, this has an effect. Another brother, Theodore, has an entirely different set of needs. Theo, as his family calls him, is one of the twins born the day their father died. He is mentally disabled, unable to communicate beyond cheerful sounds when he is content and moans when he is not. Over the years, a close and caring relationship develops between Theo and Felix. Theo is rarely more content than in Felix's company, so Felix keeps him close whenever possible. Felix even incorporates Theo into the church choir, not to sing the words but to vocalize the melody. On a daily basis, Felix serves Theo, and their bond becomes stronger and stronger as time passes. One way of understanding this bond is to see it in the context of Christ's teachings about charity. As we learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Charity suffereth long and is kind. And as Moroni writes, Charity is the pure love of Christ. The daily sacrifices that Felix makes for Theo forge this type of love. As both Felix and Theo come to adulthood, this love is put to the test. One day, several members of a family enjoy a picnic and boat ride down a nearby river. They are laughing and singing, as well as enduring a little family squabbling, when another boat comes suddenly around a corner, colliding with them violently so that both boats capsize. Felix is so attuned to caring for Theo that by reflex he dives to get hold of the full-grown Theo in the deep water and tows him to shore, using nothing short of superhuman strength to pull the two of them up the steep embankment and over the iron guardrail before he returns to help in the rescue of the others. Felix's sincere and selfless love for his brother trumps any concern for his own welfare. For in the midst of this rescue, Felix sustains an injury that will eventually take his life. Several months later, having realized that his wound will never fully heal, Felix looks back on this experience and on the responsibilities he had undertaken nearly two decades earlier. He remarks to a family friend who has been a true mentor through the years, I have had my full share of happiness, a most happy, peaceful family. Looking at what Felix has endured, peace and happiness do not seem to be the hallmarks of his life. Yet for Felix, charity, patience, peacemaking, humility, reverence, they have all combined to shape him into a person who is capable of enduring adversity while retaining the peace that Christ offers to us all. The Lord is indeed the potter for a person like Felix. Felix exemplifies the words attributed to Thomas Akempis, a 15th-century theologian. There is no other way to life and to real inner peace except the way of the cross and daily self-denial. In her depiction of Felix, Jung sets a pattern for us to follow. 
In fact, she incorporates aspects of this idea into Felix's very name. I imagine Harry Potter fans in this audience already know the common meaning of the name Felix. Indeed, we know that Charlotte Young herself was aware of the name's meaning and associations. Felix means happy in Latin, and the name is associated with good fortune. Yet this hardly seems appropriate for the character Felix in the novel. He is anything but fortunate. Did Young mean Felix's name to be ironic? I think not. I think Young meant us to reconsider our definitions of happiness and good fortune. Felix's last name starts us thinking in this manner. The family name comes from the motto on its crest, Underwode, Underroad. According to their father, this phrase incorporates Old English terms for tree and wood, wudu and wuda, and cross, road or rood. Underwode has given the family its name, Underwood. Their name acknowledges that they labor under the burdens of this earthly existence, but it also acknowledges that Christ's atonement lightens their load. The cross that is on their family crest is called a cross potent, or crutch cross. Each of its four T-shaped arms resembles a crutch. The idea is that the cross, or atonement, becomes a symbolic crutch, an aid to weary pilgrims completing their earthly journey. Before he dies, their father comments on the family crest. Underwood, underwood, he repeated, it was once but sing-song to me. Now what a sermon! The load is the cross. Bear thy cross, and thy cross will bear thee. Road and rude, cross and crutch, all the same, etymologically and veritably. I believe that Young wants us all to see ourselves as Felix Underwood, happy souls who are fortunate to lean upon the Lord as we make our way through this life. As we imaginatively step into Felix's life, we learn that cultivating virtues such as reverence, patience, humility, and charity allows us to lean upon the Lord. These attributes help us to pattern our lives upon that of our Redeemer and prepare us to access the peace that He promised to His disciples. This peace rarely comes as a great and emphatic epiphany. Instead, peace suffuses our lives when we make the daily effort to invite it. When we pause, say a prayer, and invite the Lord in, He will send His peace. I know this. I know that even imperfect efforts to be charitable, humble, and long-suffering invite the Lord into our lives. Christ's peace does not eliminate adversity. It does give us the courage and the confidence to carry on. As the Lord promised His disciples and as He promises us all, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Finding Peace, with thoughts from Jeffrey F. Ringer and Leslie Thorne Murphy. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.